Welcome to the EMS on the Mountain podcast, a show for those interested in austere and wilderness medicine. This podcast provides insight into the unique aspects and challenges of bringing modern EMS into wilderness and austere environments. And there we are. Welcome back again, folks, to another episode of EMS on the Mountain. As usual, I'm Sean and joined by my paramedic partner, Mike, the world's okayest paramedic. Hey, can you believe that? I'm actually a paramedic. They, they gave me a card and everything. It says I know medicine-y things. Actually, I, I don't believe it. I just assume it's true. All right. I passed a test. Yeah. All yeah, right. once. So what are we talking about today, Sean? Today's topic is extended patient care. And just some mindset and planning considerations for folks to make if this is something that you find yourselves doing. So uh, what the heck is extended patient care? Or as some would call it, prolonged field care. PFC, or prolonged field care, came from the special operations world. And it's most commonly defined as care provided beyond doctrinal planning times. Which is a really, really fancy way of saying providing care to people longer than we expected to do so. or providing care to people longer than we had kind of planned for. So what does that mean if we're trying to translate this sort of framework into a normal world of, I'll use the term civilian EMS, not that civilian EMS isn't normal and field care in a special operations model is not normal. It's normal for whatever world you're working in. The general standard, the general uh, rule of thumb is the golden hour. That's been taught since I began 20 years ago, right? Oh, well, the golden hour, you should not be providing care for more than an hour. The golden hour of care time, they've got to be in a hospital within an hour. Well, what happens, uh, what happens if it's going to be more than an hour? What happens if uh, your planning horizon is simply longer than an hour? People die. Yeah, I guess that's no. where uh, we just kind of take our toys and go home. Like, well, it's going to take a couple hours to get you out of here. Everything I've been taught says we got to get you to the hospital within an hour. Not going to get that done. So I guess you've had a good run. Have a nice day. I so say that's where the ambulance evaporates and, and everybody goes away, right? Yeah. And it's kind of like tech rescue and the trees that are suddenly combusted. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, trees will suddenly disappear and we need triple redundancy and I have, what is it, uh, an FPA 4787 64.2 uh, standards yeah. of triple redundancy and 10x standards for weight Steel management. Steel carabiners and three-quarter inch rope. Anyway. Yeah, but <laughs> anyway, that is not this podcast and that is, that is a different <clears throat> specialty. Did you know that I'm a... Uh, Certified type three <laughs> rope rescue expert. <laughs> That's right. Michael Damcott, ITRA level three instructor. I'm got our stuff. All right. Folks, we're we're going to get back on target here. Yeah. He, he, he's got a patch and everything, folks. Yeah, All right. It's pretty cool. All right. Let's hit this. All right. So, like Mike mentioned, the prolonged field care, or uh, another term they're now using is prolonged casualty care. And as I understand it, that's a bit of a that we used to differentiate between what is being done by special operations medics and we'll call them standard army field medics or Navy corpsmen. Just a couple of differences. Anyway, so how do we bring this type of care or this mentality to the civilian world? Honestly, this is perfect for the austere and wilderness medical practitioner by their very nature and depending on which definition you want to look at. We're already kind of getting into prolonged field care or extended patient care. So almost all the care we provide is outside that traditional one hour mark. Now, Mike and I are using the golden hour, which used to be the, the great standard for trauma management. If you got him to the hospital within an hour, their chances of living were exponentially higher than if you took four hours, which really shocker, right? 
Is that truly the most accurate thing? Don't know, but it's what we have to work with as a comparison for the civilian model, all right? Again, not all calls are gonna be severe or life-threatening. However, uh, the principles remain the same and you need to be considered in order to execute them and do it successfully. So there was an article in the Journal of Wilderness Environmental Care put on by the Wilderness Medical Society. And the title of the article was Prolonged Field Care Beyond the Golden Hour. So even this, uh, this concept of prolonged field care is now making its way into a lot more places on the civilian side of things. And you find some training organizations are providing care for this. A special operations aid and rescue has their extended austere provider course, which Mike and I both attended. Good course. You should take it. And a couple other places are doing very similar work. So this is no longer the sole domain, we'll say, of the military, although they are the ones practicing this on a much more routine basis. And that's where a lot of this good information comes from. This, they're the ones doing the research and looking at the science behind a lot of this stuff. And the big thing with the article is it acknowledges that the golden hour is no longer necessarily feasible in all situations, nor should it be the benchmark of good care and tied directly to patient outcomes at the backside. So with that, there are a few tasks under prolonged field care that kind of start separating it from the traditional 15-minute ambulance run, or even the shorter wilderness or austere care scenarios where you're just seeing a patient for a very short period of time. And we're just going to kind of go down the list. We'll talk about them as necessary. Mike may or may not jump in on some of these, right? I probably will because that's what I do. (laughs) He's good at that, right? So the first one, monitor the patient to create a useful vital sign trend. So if you've got a patient that you're dealing with for hours, so we're dealing with, remember, prolonged. And if we're considering one hour to be our standard, we're looking at two plus hours with our patients. And so if you have a patient who is, even if they're relatively what we'd like to call stable, we need to know that for a fact. And the only way to do that is to monitor them and continue to get vital signs and trend those over time. That's how you know if your patient's being stable, whether starting to decline or making improvements based on some of your treatments. Next one. Okay. This one, this is going to be a challenge. And this one is direct from the military. Resuscitate the patient beyond crystalloid or colloid infusion. What's this mean? This means blood products, folks. Now, Unless you're in the military or in an extremely advanced, aggressive American wilderness EMS system, we are not carrying blood products. We're just not there yet. I don't have a refrigerator in my pack. I could carry a warmer. That's not a problem. They do make good portable warmers for blood just for this purpose, but I'm not carrying one. It is worth note, though, here, this is me jumping in, right? There's a lot in that. So, yes, resuscitation beyond crystalloid and colloid infusions means blood in this strict definition. If you are not familiar, if you as a provider are not familiar with the concept of permissive hypotension and the effects of dumping a bunch of fluid into people and turning their blood into Kool-Aid, which has been talked about for 20 plus years now is a bad idea. Not, I think every ALS provider out there understands that overly aggressive fluid resuscitation is now considered persona non grata in the medicine community. But it is not yet, I'll call it, standard knowledge or standard talked about for extended care concepts of tracking a map and allowing for permissive hypotension for fluid deficited or folks that have had some sort of traumatic event. There's really a lot of focus recently on not dumping a bunch of fluid and blowing out clots and any internal wounds that could be there. This is not something that I'll call it a standard transport short ride truck crew thinks about a whole lot. 
but it is something that you have to keep in mind during resuscitation, especially if you don't have blood products, right? This does not mean dump a bag of fluid in them and then be like, well, okay, like I hope their blood pressure stays stable. You have to think about these things. You have to understand MAP. You have to understand what it takes to perfuse kidneys and brain tissue. If there's a head injury, if there isn't a head injury, different decisions that are going to be made in those scenarios and then make a plan accordingly because you can, though the term is resuscitate the patient beyond colloid infusions, there are a lot of implications to dumping a bunch of fluid into people, especially if you're going to be with them for a long period of time and you have to understand those implications. And with that, maybe we'll do an episode on it later. Maybe we'll talk about the hemodynamic impact. That seems like a yeah, good it's, idea. It's actually probably to talk about. Really good it's probably a whole episode in and of itself, but yeah, uh, for sure. I'm just going to bring that up here. It does not mean, oh, I've got to go to fluid and then I have to get them to blood. You have, there's a lot more that goes into fluid resuscitation, especially when you're with a patient for a long period of time. Exactly. All right. Next on that list, ventilate and oxygenate the patient. Clearly, this is very much patient dependent. If your patient is able to maintain their own airway, they're maintaining acceptable ventilation and oxygenation, then cool. If they're not, this gets back into the EMS standard of if they're not breathing right, fix it. Whether you're going to breathe for them or you're going to use simple adjuncts or an advanced airway, get on it. Gain definitive control of the patient's airway. Now, this is very much coming from the military special operations side, where for the most part, not exclusively, for the most part, soft advanced practitioners are not intubating people. They're going right to the crike because it's a much better long-term definitive airway. We're not going to discuss pros and cons of us on the civilian side getting into this. Just know that if you need definitive control of your patient's airway, get definitive control of your patient's airway through whatever means you are allowed to do that. Tied kind of with that, sedation and pain control, right? You need to be able to use both of those, perhaps together, interchangeably, to help maintain a good airway. Like if you have to sedate your patient to maintain that advanced airway or to help in the resuscitation. If you have a patient that's flailing all over the place and is preventing you from providing good care or continues to dislodge IVs or bandaging that you're trying to control bleeding with, then sedation to calm them down and keep them stable is a better option for you. Use physical examination and diagnostic measures to gain awareness of potential problems. This kind of ties right back into to the first one of monitoring your patient. You have to do your physical exam. You have to do a good physical exam. And I'm not just saying run through the perfunctory old legacy. Now it's legacy, right? NREMT physical exam. You have to do an actual physical exam. And you have to be able to continue to do a physical exam to see if things like bleeding are truly under control or are they slowly continuing to weep is there still minor bleeding going on? Or, wow, that abdomen looks a little puffy now. What's going on with that? Well, there's usually only one answer to that, and it's blood. But if you're not that, doing the good physical exam, you're never going to know it. And that, that ties directly back to monitor the patient to create useful vital sign trends. If you're with a patient for four hours and they've got injuries, you should be repeating those trauma assessments. It's not do a primary, do a secondary, and you're done, right? These are things that for an extended field care environment, for an extended period of time with a patient, you need to be checking their abdomen every so often. You need to be palpating things and investigating if there's been a change. Has a part of the abdomen become rigid an hour, an hour and a half, two hours after the initial insult and your arrival on scene? And it's not just a matter of like taking a peek quick and then gaining some awareness. These are vital signs at this point. We have to treat them as vital signs. We need to be checking a full assessment, and that includes our interventions every so often to make sure that they're still effective if we're with a patient for an extended period of time. Exactly, right? 
So vital signs are called vital signs for a reason. They weren't called basic signs or maybe this is a good idea signs. They were vital signs. So you got to track it and you got to be able to make that trend, especially as Mike pointed out. If that abdomen is starting to become distended or rigid an hour or so afterwards, which is oftentimes the case, especially for us on the civilian side, we're not dealing with like significant like penetrating traumas due to explosive blast, gunshots, et cetera, though it does occur with us. Our internal bleeding is often a bit slower. It's from that a lacerated liver or maybe a ruptured kidney or something that's not just gushing blood like at a huge flow rate, but maybe it's a slower bleed and it's taking time to build up. But if you're not re reassessing the patient, you're not going to find that. And then by the time you do, I mean, there's nothing you could do about it, but it might change the urgency with which you're trying to move your patient or find means to evacuate them to higher care. All right. Next up, provide nursing, hygiene, and comfort measures. So this definitely goes into the definitely more on the military side where I might have this patient for days and not just hours. But And Michael talked about how we translate some of this in there, but think about nursing hygiene comfort measures, right? If you've got that patient in a Stokes basket and it's taken 12 hours to carry them somewhere, somewhere in that 12 hours, hopefully they're going to have to use the bathroom. What's your plan? Is it straight up, hey, we've laid some chucks underneath you. I know it's going to smell bad and you're going to feel funny about doing it, but go for it. Or is there a way for you to let them out of the Stokes? Maybe it's just for a lower, a lower limb fracture or something where they just simply can't walk. And you can let them out of the basket, let them hobble behind some bushes with some help and take care of business. You got to think about it. Or we've had to bivouac overnight with patients. And if they are truly immobilized, especially if you maybe had to sedate them and truly keep an eye on them, pressure sores develop pretty quickly. And if you've got somebody in a Stokes basket and they're feeling very uncomfortable, stop. Let's try and readjust them, put them in a position of better comfort, provide more padding, et cetera. So you got to think about some of these nursing and comfort measures. We're not just going to be providing sponge baths and things like that. We're not going to have them that long, but you need to think about these things. I'm down for sponge baths. I, I, I knew that was coming. <laughs> I, I, I didn't want to mention it, but I knew it was coming. <laughs> That's my partner. Yeah. Right, so next up on that list, perform advanced surgical interventions. This one is definitely what we'll call outside the scope of us, of us common lay folk. And even in the grand scheme of things, the special operations medics are not doing, I mean, they would be considered advanced surgical interventions. And really, for the most part, these are things like a finger thoracotomy, maybe putting in a chest tube. It's really about it. They're not generally speaking, going in into the abdomen and clamping off pieces of bowel and things, right? That's just, that's, it's beyond even their scope, right? But those are things you need to be considering doing work on. This is a big one now that's a huge part of deployed medicine, and that's the telemedicine consult. The military actually has a designated hotline phone number set up with physicians who are specifically selected and trained to answer these calls and provide essentially medical control or medical oversight to folks in the field. You know, it's one of those, hey, doc, I am Medic Johnson, I am a special operations trained medic, or I'm a regular line medic, and this is where I'm at. This is what I have. These are the tools available to me. This is what I want to do with my patient. Give me a big yes or no. And they might come back and say, that sounds like a legit plan. Do that. Or come back with, hey, let's not do that because of these reasons. Try this. Do that. If that doesn't work, call back. And you might get a completely different doctor the next time. You're going to have to go through that whole thing. But the telemedicine consult is a really big thing now for deployed medics, even on the, we'll call it the conventional force side. So it's just like us reaching out and calling for med control and getting additional orders or permission to do something else, exceed traditional dosing limits, or maybe it is to provide 
an advanced skill. Like maybe per official protocol, you're not allowed to do a needle crike. But at the moment, you have nothing else to do. So you can call med control. Hey, it's within my scope. I've got the, the tools here to do it. Can I do this? There's no other way I can get this airway. And they might be like, yeah, go for it. And then hurry the fuck up and get here. So it is what it is. So think about your telemedicine. And lastly, prepare your patient for flight. And obviously, this is not always a flight thing, even on the military side. They're kind of bound by a lot of the similar rules that we are. Plus, people shoot at the helicopters, which generally not a concern for us. But you need to prep yeah, your patient. It's generally bad when you get shot at, though. Like it's, yeah. it's kind of productive to what we're trying to achieve. So, yeah. So, you know, lastly on their list is, is you got to get that patient ready for the evacuation. And with that, that's generally the group of tasks as outlined for the military. And Mike's going to kind of walk us through how we're going to modify some of those and make them more applicable to what we do in the, the civilian wilderness and austere care scenario. Dare I say these are the EMS on the mountain modified PFC tasks for wilderness care. I'm sure somebody yeah. else has come up with this list before, but yeah, it sounds cool. It. So I'm going with it. Yeah, this is Sean's interpretation. So take it for yeah. what it's worth. All right. Well, he's part of the podcast, so I guess we'll just call it ours now. First and foremost, your initial response. There's a lot of alignment here, right? Special operations medics are going to deploy into the field with equipment based on their mission. We should be planning on having the appropriate equipment ready for our initial response. There's typically in a wilderness response, an initial responder, and then the incoming parties. It is a pretty common practice to get quote unquote eyes on, get somebody out there to actually assess the level of need. And then from there, make a resource request to figure out what is actually necessary for the rescue. So that initial response is our first step. Let's get a first responder. Let's get an EMT. Let's get a paramedic. Let's get whoever's closest to wherever we've been asked to go or deploy resources to go find the missing individual that's in need of help but isn't sure where they are. Let's get that initial response rolling. That does not mean we're bringing the kitchen sink with us. It means we're getting initial response teams out there to do initial basic responsive care and provide a report back to allow additional incoming responders to prepare for and equip themselves appropriately to bring the appropriate equipment with them. Once we're there and we're, we're on scene with the patient, let's do an assessment. Let's do them all. Uh, physical exam. I know I harp on this a lot in this podcast, but it's, it's just bad medicine to like not do a thorough assessment of your patient and ask all the questions and palpate their spine and actually check their hips and it's, a lot of times if somebody falls down and they break their arm and it hurts, they're going to be like, ow, my arm hurts. You need to make sure that they didn't also break a rib or that they're, they don't have some other sort of thoracic compromise that they weren't necessarily aware of right away because their dislocated shoulder, their broken forearm hurts a lot. And they, they didn't really process the fact that they also cracked some ribs in the process and they, they have a bit of a flail chest going on perhaps. Well, they're probably going to know if they have flail chest, but you need to do a thorough assessment. That also includes vital signs. It includes the history, right? Let's not forget that medications they take, past pertinent medical history, last oral intake, are they hydrated? Are they, they're in the wilderness. It's hot in the summer in most places. Have they been hydrating? All of these things tend to provide a better picture. Uh, and I personally am a huge fan of check everybody's glucose because sometimes you just don't know. Then at that point, we're, we're largely stepping into the same step, but we're just going to call it resuscitation stabilization, right? If they need, fluid, let's get them some fluid. If there's stabilization to be done, let's stabilize. This is exactly the same as the military, but I think the, the PFC tasking is, is much more traumatic related as opposed to medical event related, right? They're really primarily dealing with people that have had 
fast-moving objects make contact with their body in an unexpected manner. A lot of times for a more uh, stateside EMS sort of model or an EMS model on whole in the world, there can be a lot of medical events that occur. There could be dehydration, bee stings, things like that. They all require stabilization. Resuscitation is necessary, but uh, stabilizing and, and making sure whatever's causing the problem is removed from the environment or the patient is removed from the environment that's causing the problem is really, you know, it's a pretty good step to, to get in there early on. Yeah, something to think about, which Mike kind of hit on with just checking glucose on people is, and well, we'll send, again, say this is kind of a, generally speaking, young guys serving in the military don't have pre-existing cardiac and conditions or diabetes, et cetera. And so our patients, AFib is almost a standard if you're 60 years and older, same with diabetes of one flavor or another. And so doing the glucose checks, it's an easy win. It's simple. It's lightweight. And then, as Mike mentioned, it's like, have you been eating? Have you been drinking? Some of these electrolyte imbalances can start having effects on cardiac function. Now, we're not carrying monitors deep in the woods, but having an idea that, do you have any medical or cardiac conditions? Oh, yes, I have this. That's just one more thing for you to think about in the back of your brain. Yeah, you have to do an entire assessment, and then you have to stabilize the patient and mitigate things that you could mitigate. All right, here's where we're going to draw a parallel. So we're going to say continued care and nursing. I'm not going to go deep into the, we're worried about multiple days very often, but I will say it is different when you're with a patient for six, 10, 12 hours, or even a few hours, and they're in a Stokes and they're being carried in an urban environment. We get them to the cot and then we get the cot in the truck and then we drive to the hospital and we no, do you want to sit up a little bit, Miss Smith? That's about as far as it goes. It's really uncomfortable to be in a Stokes for a long period of time. It just is. It's uncomfortable. It's unpleasant. You're not having a good day. It's bumpy. Things can hurt. You have to kind of think about that continued care. You have to think about the need of your patient to evacuate their bowels and what kind of assistance they're going to need. Are you camping out overnight to be able to fly them out the next day? Do you need to keep them warm? Do you need to keep them hydrated? Do you need to feed them? Very rarely on an urban truck are you handing a Snickers bar to a patient and saying, hey, would you like a snack? But in the wilderness, we need to think about those things. Calories equal the ability for your, your body to maintain, I almost said symbiosis, but that's not the right word. Uh, I can't think of it at the moment. Sean, homeostasis. Homeostasis, that's the one. Thank you, homie. I'm slightly better than the world's okayest paramedic. Yeah, he's mediocre plus one. I'm mediocre minus three. You have to think about these things. You have to provide a certain level of nursing care. Um, if your patient fell down and went boom, Right? You need to clean the wounds pretty effectively. You might need to just help clean their hands and wipe some dirt off their face. Or if it's hot and sweaty out, a baby wipe for wiping off your face when you're going to be hanging out there for another nine hours, that can really make a difference into the patient's mental state. So you have to think about these things. All right. From there, we need to pray prayer for the evacuation. Well, once we've treated the eminent life threats and stabilized the patient, it's typically bad form to be like, all right, I'm out. See ya. I'm, I'm uh, going home now. So you're going to have to prepare them for evacuation. There's a whole litany of things, depending on what tooling you're using, the equipment. It is pretty common practice to use a Stokes. Uh, I've seen some other pretty cool tools that can be, Stokes can be pulled behind UTVs, gators. All of those things are used. But in the end of the day, most of the time, patients usually end up in a Stokes. It's, I mentioned this a minute ago, it's uncomfortable to just lay in a Stokes. It's not pleasant. I'm a big fan of vacuum splints, but vacuum splints, by definition, produce a vacuum around a, a fracture. If that thing's going to be on there for 20 hours, that can cause discomfort in and of itself. 
I typically don't do a lot of padding under vacuum splints. I probably need to think about it a little bit more, maybe wrap it in a sheet first, something to avoid the skin to uh, uh, that. It's not nylon, but the, the yeah, synthetic vinyl material vinyls stuff, yeah. that it's made out of, uh, especially in the heat. I, that just occurred to me right now. But you got to prepare them for evacuation and take the time, right? Hey, can I pad under your knees? Can I, do we need to pad the small of your back? Do they need a helmet? Do we need to protect their face? And then you need to evacuate them. And I've talked about this a little bit on the podcast before. I'm going to harp on it now. Talk to your patient. There's nothing worse than being that patient that's being carried for 10 hours and talked over and treated as though they're just a problem people are solving. In addition to my, my one of many mantras about talking to your patient, you have to perform care in route. Do you have drips running? I'm actually of the opinion now that like, pumps aren't that expensive, but I understand that you may have drips running. Shaking a bag on a bumpy trail is going to result in a totally different dosing. So be cognizant of that. Probably not the best plan. Do you need to provide additional pain management? You should have access to things to perform vitals checks. You can't just wrap your patient up in a sleeping bag, toss them in a, in a stokes and be like, all right, we're good for four hours. You should be taking vital signs. You should be checking these things. You should be checking the thermal status of your patient. Are they warm enough? Are they cold enough? Do you have the equipment and the means to manage that? These are all things you have to do for the entire duration of the evacuation. So it feels like a pretty good list to me. Uh, Sean, I know you kind of came up with it because you're a rock star and you're, you're the world's best mediocre perimedicine guy. Any other thoughts? No, but like you hit on a good one, right? The, even during evacuation, you still have to go back to that physical assessment part. So even though it's November, December, or if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, July, if it's cold, it's cold. And if you have to expose your patient to continue to do your physical assessments and continue your assessments, right? So gaining your vital signs, doing your assessments and continuing to trend and monitor your patient doesn't stop just because the Stokes began to move. The Stokes is moving usually for several hours still. If you've had a patient where you've been that concerned, where you've been doing vital signs every 15, 30 minutes from the start, why would you stop for the last two and a half or three hours as they're being carried somewhere? Well, clearly you wouldn't because that goes back into Mike's mantra. That's just poor patient care. If you're not monitoring your patient, you're doing it wrong. So you have to plan and you have to take the time to stop. Okay, let's do a set of vital signs real quick. All right, blood pressures are still good. That means I can still give you some pain management. Your breathing is good. You're still satin well. Excellent. Morphine is still a candidate. Let's keep moving. You can't just stop there. Nope, you got to manage. And especially when you're talking narcotics, you need to be monitoring your patient pretty aggressively. Right? We, we uh, in an urban system, in a lot of urban systems, now it's mandatory to put a patient on the monitor and put them on capnography if you're giving them narcotics. We're not carrying a whole lot of capnography. And in fact, the only thing that's really somewhat effective out there is called an EMMA, but that's really only for innovative folks. Yeah, I know some you... folks have tried to make some, some yeah. tooling to use it, but I'm not, I'm not duct taping that to a nasal cannula and stick it into your face if you're conscious. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, so it's certainly an option. Improvisation, yeah. another episode. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if if I really want to know what your capnography is, I guess I'll just crack you. But that's really that's really <laughs> awkward and somewhat inappropriate if the patient's still conscious and doesn't need it. So, really, no good methodology here. But you need to monitor their vital signs, right? You're slinging some pretty potent medications, and just because you're in the woods, that does not negate your responsibility to provide good patient care and monitor your patient after giving the medications. All right. So all that said, how do we plan to execute all of these different things? Right. So if you're using the military version, you've got like a dozen some steps. And even if you're using our modified version, you got like six or seven. 
And things like your assessment, maybe the resuscitation stabilization piece, those are constants. Those are going to go nonstop, right? Maybe some of your, your continued care nursing type skills are going to be intermittent, hit or miss, depending on what you've got going on. So how are we going to do all that? Well, the military took the approach to break this down into four, not quite phases, but four lines of equipment, support, and things like that. And I kind of like the way they broke it down. So therefore, your ruck, truck, house, and aircraft. So the ruck, if you're not familiar with this, a rucksack, some old school German stuff, it's your pack, right? That's the thing you carried all the stuff into the woods with. This is what you're going to have in your response pack, on your body, what you're carrying into the patient. It's your minimum equipment set list. We are going to have a separate episode about types of equipment and things to be carried in the response pack and in these med kits. But essentially, it's, it's the foundational, fundamental pieces of kit that you need to have to respond to, we'll say, maybe 80% of all the calls that are out there. You are going to run into those situations where you might have to grab some additional things off of another response vehicle or something to take with you. Uh, you might not always carry like a traction splint with you, even a compact like Schlissman or some of the other brands that are out there. So that's your first line stuff. Now, depending where you're at, how you operate, what goes in that, basic trauma care, some fundamental medical stuff, perhaps your first line drugs and things. I and Mike both also believe your full set minus a cardiac monitor of your ability to take vital signs, right? So a stethoscope, blood pressure cuff, and a glucometer at a minimum and a portable pulse ox, right? So those four things at a minimum you should be going with, especially if you're an advanced provider. If you intend to be giving narcotics, for example, one of the thresholds for those is a blood pressure that can sustain their use, right? So you need to be able to check that. You can't just guess and go, well, they've got a good radial pulse. I can give them morphine now. Mm, can you? Maybe not, right? You got to be able to check these things. So your next level would be the truck. Uh, this could be, depending on how it's interpreted, you're like a SAR response vehicle, like an actual 4x4 truck, a Suburban, Ford F-150, some big Dodge Ram, whatever it is. This could be something small, right? An ATV, a UTV. I will also equate the truck with your additional resources to your additional responders that are coming along to help with a potential rescue and carry out. So if you've got another crew of, we'll say a dozen people coming, carrying a Stokes litter and maybe some rope rigging gear, whatever it might be, have them bring some of that extra stuff you want. Have them bring, hey, bring my small orange ALS bag with you when you come, because that's got some additional things we want to have available to us as we continue the rescue. So there's a few ways to interpret the truck part of that. Next one is the house. For most of us, it's probably going to be the ambulance, right? It's going to be the next biggest thing you're going to get to. It's going to be reasonably well-stocked and have most of the rest of the equipment and supplies you're going to want to use. That's where your cardiac monitor is going to be. You're going to be able to get them on their capno, check their heart, things like that, additional fluids, additional medicines. And again, that could be their definitive point. They're going to get to that. They're going to get a full evaluation at that point. Maybe it was a fractured ankle, maybe more, but they're going to at least get a full, much more detailed exam, good lighting, air conditioning, or heat. And maybe that's where they refuse or determine that, hey, we definitely have to go to the hospital at this point. Other things could be a small clinic or if you're in a, a park environment, a ranger's station, things like that. Places where you're going to be able to have a much more stable environment, generally better lighting, better climate control, et cetera, where you can do more work and it's out of the environment and it's a much more, we'll say, hospitable place to do your patient care. Lastly, the aircraft. So this can either be 
aircraft for us. You're calling in some sort of medical helicopter, some sort of helicopter EMS system, right? To have those flight medics, flight nurses come and pick up your patient and take them off to a specialist center. Could be an ambulance, maybe BLS ambulance, maybe ALS ambulance. Either way, it's going to be ground transport, again, to definitive care. Whatever it is, it's, we look at it as whatever the final transport mode is for your patient leaving your care on their way to the hospital to actually see a physician, get things fixed, whatever it might be. With that, and if you lump the ambulance in, it might not be your ambulance. So where Mike and I do most of our work, they do have an ambulance. We do staff the ambulance. We might evacuate them to that ambulance, and then we still might rendezvous with another transport unit, transfer care so that they can continue with that other unit. And then Mike and I can go back into service, restock all of our kit, and continue providing services for our our response area. So you got to think not just in terms of the mode of transport or the place you're going to take them, but it's also the escalation of ability to provide care. So again, first thing is the ruck, your pack. Those are those frontline immediate things you're going to be able to work from. And then when you move up to the truck, hopefully you should have additional supplies that are available to you or be able to brought to you. Like I said, the truck for us might be more responders coming on scene and they can bring you additional stuff, raincoats for your patient, bringing you food and water for your patient, things like that. Again, the house, your first, what I'll call the first stop in a, the best place you've had so far to do patient care. And again, for most of us, probably going to be an ambulance. Is that ambulance going to be the same one that provides final transport to the destination? Might be, might not be. But again, that's the next place you're going to go that's going to have a stable environment where we're going to say probably most of the rest of your higher level patient care devices and equipment is going to be your monitors, additional drugs, et cetera. And it might even have higher level practitioners for you to work with, right? So it might have been a BLS crew that was part of that main evacuation. And maybe Mike and I show up with the ambulance and they bring them to us. We continue to do the evaluation and then we make a determination of, oh yeah, hey, by the way, you're also having a heart attack. That might've been what caused the fall. And then we, we go from there. Now, is that kind of a stretch? Yeah, maybe, but you never know. Or it could be they get to us and they can finally get pain management beyond Motrin. Okay. And we might be the ones to take them into the local clinic at that point. Who knows? Right? But again, it's an escalation of, we'll say, care. I guess it would be the right word, right? An escalation of care. You're going to start from your basic, uh, as Mike put it, the initial response, which might be just EMT, maybe an EMR, maybe a wellness first responder, wellness first aider. First person on scene, do that foundational patient assessment, let you know, hey, this is what we've got. This is what I think we need right now. And then the rest of the resources start coming. Then the professional will say, well, there's EMS response guys like Mike or I or somebody else. We show up on scene, validate those initial findings, maybe make some more plans. And everything just continues to escalate from there. So you got to think of it, your care is on a continuum, right? Because this isn't just a simple, we got a call for somebody at a football game who may have broken a leg. You get to the field. Yep, that definitely looks like it's wrong. Splint it, put them in the unit, start an IV, give some pain meds, maybe a little Zofran for nausea, and off you go to the doctor. Short, simple, we're done in 30 minutes. Same fractured leg, two miles down trail can become a four to six, eight hour event, all depending on your terrain, the weather, available responders, et cetera. And then if we take that into some of our other austere provider friends who are working things like offshore gas and oil platforms. Okay, you got rough seas, no surface vessels are coming, bad weather, no helicopters coming. I might be the paramedic on an oil rig out in the ocean 
and I can't evacuate a patient for three, four days. Now those nursing skills become a much bigger deal because now I have a patient who's laid up in my little clinic and now I have to really think about taking care of that patient. Maybe I have to start considering hygiene and using baby wipes or whatever and giving that sponge bath just to keep them clean and hygienic, make sure they're turning over, rotating them as they lay in the bed, assuming they're really that out of it so they don't develop pressure sores and things like that. Mike and I generally focus a lot on wilderness care just because that's what we do. That's where our expertise lies. But for the remainder of the austere community that's out there, even if you work in an oil field in the middle of Saudi Arabia for Exxon or any of these big corporations as, as the on-site medic, you might be a couple of days from getting somebody out, depending on the situation of where you're at, weather, availability of resources, right? Because you got to remember a lot of these places where we drill for oil, there's not a lot of infrastructure that surrounds these fields. So it could take you some time. Medics that work on ships, right? If you're a a paramedic and you work on a large container ship that's doing transatlantic crossings, shipping goods from Europe and Asia to the US, Canada, et cetera, you are definitely days from help, right? If you're in the middle of a crossing, you've got to get to a certain point where you're within at least a couple hundred miles of somebody's coastline to at least get a helicopter out there to get specialized care on board or your patient evacuated. So while we talk in hours for Mike and I, and when I, I know when I talk to my urban counterparts and they're like, oh my God, how long did you have that patient? Like 12 hours. Holy cow, what did you do for 12 hours? They're, they're dumbfounded by 12 hours. And there are guys that same level of practitioner Mike and I are, maybe some additional specialized training because of where they work out there on oil platforms and such that might have patients for three or four days, much like the military might. Right? Mm-hmm. And so the same tasks apply. It's just that, that continuum of care, you just need to learn to scale it. And again, the ruck, truck, house, aircraft piece, I like that mantra. I think it fits well for those of us that work in the, the wilderness environment. But if you're one of those stable offshore oil rig guys, really you're looking at more like house slash aircraft because that's what you are. You're, you're already on a stable platform. You're not going anywhere. You might have to provide some initial scene care, that initial stabilization, take care of the critical ABCs. And then you're going to move them into whatever little clinic room you have that's at that facility and then continue your care and then wait for your evacuation. But you need to be able to scale it. You need to pack accordingly. If your environment is very hot, dry, hot, humid, especially hot, humid places, dehydration is a concern. Do you need to bring fluid with you? I would recommend probably. Uh, should an ALS provider pretty much always have at least a bag of fluid with them? Yeah, you never know when you're going to need to do some of that trauma crash resuscitation. Somebody takes a pitch off a high fall, does a significant laceration on some sharp rocks on the way down or at the bottom, do some blood loss, you might have to replace a little bit of fluid, dehydration, etc. Anyway, we don't want to get too deep into that, but you got to think about it, think how you can organize your equipment, think about it in that stair-stepped escalating approach, and you should probably be all right. Yeah, I think we nailed it. I don't have any other major points or anything else you want to point out? Uh, I think really, for those that do practice or want to practice in the wilderness austere environment, for those of us that are already doing this and have been doing it for a little while, these are things you're like, oh yeah, no kidding. Or you might think about like, oh yeah, I like that idea, you know, ruck, truck, house, blah, 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 and might reorganize some of your kit. Think about that care beyond that normal response time frame. Mentally prepare yourself to be with your patient for a long time. And part of that mental preparation is, is you and your kit, are you prepared to be with your patient for 18 hours? If you're not prepared to be in the woods for 18 hours, that's not a good sign, right? That's um, true. Yeah. You got to come correct as well. You got to be ready for this. Right. Exactly. Right. You have to be prepared. And, and again, we're going to have another episode on that coming out. You still have to be able to provide the same level of services, whether you're in the woods, an oil rig, whatever. You need to be able to provide all the same services 
within reason. I know there are going to be challenges with that, but you should be able to provide all those same basic services as any other urban EMS response. And I guess really that's about it. Think about your environment, what your primary operating area is, and plan accordingly. And things will go a lot smoother for you. All right. Well, with that, I guess we'll call this a wrap and we'll talk to y'all soon. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for show topics, you can send us an email at the show at emsonthemountain.com or hit us up on social media. We can be found on Facebook and Instagram at EMS on the Mountain, Twitter at EMSOTM, or you can engage with us and a whole community of wilderness EMS professionals at locals.com slash wilderness EMS. Until the next episode, thanks for joining us. And until we see you on the mountain, train hard, be safe, and do good work.